The skills we need to live and work are changing. But what does that mean for education? Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking to inspirational teachers in different countries who are taking the skills that made our modern world possible and reinventing them for a new generation. This is Old School, the skills that made us and how they're changing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Old School, the skills that made us and how they're changing. I'm your host, Nicholas Pearshow, and today we're continuing our look at traditional skills in the Canadian Arctic. We're going to be building on our conversation in the last episode with Global Teacher Prize winner Maggie McDonnell, so please do check that episode out if you haven't already heard it. My guest today is Felix Apollo, who is from Nunavik in northern Canada. He is the founder of All Arctic, a nonprofit working with Indigenous communities in Canada. Felix, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Nicholas. Uh, such an honor to be here. One of the things that came out of my conversation with, with Maggie is how in traditional skills and knowledge are being passed down in Indigenous communities in Canada and how they've changed over time. Is that something I appreciate? That's a very broad topic. But is that something that you could speak to? I think, uh, obviously, this is an amazing question because Indigenous peoples are, are known to have kept knowledge for, for millennia. Um, so I can only speak to my own experience and uh, to my experience within my own community, which is that of the Inuit. Um, but what I can tell you is that for thousands of years, our... Um, our culture and our traditions were were transmitted orally. So it was an oral tradition that that really kept our stories going. Uh, we had no written language, and um, skills were were truly passed down in a in a more pragmatic pragmatic way. So when uh, when we would go hunting or fishing, everything would be done through observation. That's how that's how the kids learned to. Uh, uh, grasp onto the skills that they need to survive the the cold Arctic. So that's how that's how it was for most uh, for most Inuit uh, for for so long. But because of our history with colonialism, uh, there was a, a major shock in our traditional ways of living, and uh, our ep epistemologies and our and our ways of knowing were were inherently disrupted. Uh, especially with the introduction of Christianity, we sort of lost this uh, this, this contact with uh, our more traditional ways of knowing. So, despite the fact that we did lose some some of our more traditional ways, um, Inuit, I would I would say, um, are still very connected to the land because we live in such a remote and uh, secluded part of the world, which is the Arctic. So, in that sense. Uh, we haven't lost it as much, at least not as much as other indigenous groups uh, that that live elsewhere in, in North America. So yeah, that being said, you know, we for so long we were ripped away from our own minds, spirits, and bodies. So we have sort of been kept away from from our our, our true nature was, which was to to live uh, in sync with with nature. And uh, I can say that there's a lot of reconnecting in both urban and rural indigenous communities that's been my observation certainly um so so yeah to wrap it up i would say you know we've we've been able to pass down knowledge and skills mostly through oral tradition i'm really interested in that because 
that seems so at odds with what we would see as the sort of the Western way of of teaching. Is that something that that's a fair assessment? Is it sort of a was it sort of a, a real shock to indigenous communities and to the Inuit people to have this new system come and rip away this, you know, established language and way of learning? There was a, a written language that was established uh, for Inuit. It's called the Inuktitut syllabic uh, system. So therefore, all the knowledge that we did uh, keep, that we were able to keep, um, most of it has been documented. So there's organizations that that take care of documenting all this. And uh, so in a sense, yes, it's been a huge shock because we were, up until very recently, we were nomadic people. We survived off of hunting and gathering. My my grandma was born in a tent. I always like to embed a little bit of stories. It's it's a lived experience. Uh, so in a sense, it's been a it's been a major shock. And I would say that to add to that, it sort of uh, uh, gives us a reality of having a foot in both worlds in this day and age. Most Inuit people have English as a second language, um, so we we are uh, we're also a population that is mixed with its heritage. So we kind of embrace all of it, and uh, this is our, our new reality in some way. But uh, I can certainly say that the traditional skills and knowledge and um, in, in the way in which they, they've been transmitted in the past are, are sort of have been harshly affected by colonialism and partly because there's a, there's a bridge and there's a gap uh, between generations where the elders, there's very few elders in our communities, uh, they're getting a bit older, they're not as healthy, so... Uh, they're not they don't always have the bandwidth and the capacity to uh, sort of keep giving this knowledge to to the youth so and that's part of our history of colonialism so it's uh, that's where we are today when I was speaking with Maggie one of the things that struck me and I'd be really interested in in your reflection on this is uh, we were talking about her kayaking program and she was talking a bit about you know how the community she'd worked with had engaged with it and she was saying obviously kayaking comes from this region of the world and it's very important or has been very important to the people there and yet it is this international phenomenon this sort of sporting phenomenon which is done all over the world but i i would imagine is done with it's sort of been if this is a fair word co-opted by by the West, right? Like it's the vocabulary around it, the way it's taught, the way it's marketed has, it would seem to me, very little to do with where it originally came from. And I, I found it, you know, very interesting that, you know, there was this sort of kayaking program that was then being reintroduced to Indigenous communities in, in the Arctic. And I, I'd be interested in your sort of reflections on that and you know, what that says about the way Indigenous communities have been treated and how their culture has been, I suppose, both erased and taken. I, I'm, I'm amazed that you shed light on this. I think it's, a, it's something that really has to be uh, discussed. You know, what you say is truth. Our, our kayaks, the, the modern day world that most of the world uses for 
kayaks is kayak uh, as seen through Maggie's program. Um, and, and this was the way of transportation for a lot of people that would normally, um, you know, they, they would do this for a living. That's how we, we would provide for, for our families, go, go hunting, go fishing. So in a way, um, it's been ripped away from its original, um, intent. I, I would say the, the intent was, it was mostly a tool for survival rather than uh, a sport for, for leisure or for fun. So getting to reconnect with, with this amazing uh, piece of culture and tradition, and, and truly it's, it's a way of life. Uh, kayaking is, is a way of life. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a good way to help the youth reconnect because it also forces the, the youth to, to, to be out on the land and, and to learn a pragmatic skill that they're able to, to embed in their, in their, in their activities. And, also just getting to know how to build the kayak. Um, I was never, I was never taught myself. So I, I don't know how to, how to build one. I certainly how to know how to navigate one, but I think the, the fact that these projects allow for, for youth to, to have their experiences validated in a way where it's culturally relevant is really important. So I think uh, not only building kayaks, but learning how to paddle them and navigate them is, is a really good way to uh, to help the the indigenous youth, no doubt. Thanks so much, Felix. And I'm really interested in in your own work with indigenous communities, and particularly through your nonprofits, All Arctic. Can you talk a little bit about the work that it's doing? Absolutely. So, All Arctic is a recognized Inuit-led nonprofit organization that benefits all the people of the Arctic. And it's in its founding stage. It, it was founded in, in 2022. And uh, our mission basically is to develop, implement, and foster programs for all people of the Arctic. Um, so at the moment, it's headquartered in my hometown of Povilintuk, which is in, in Nunavik, the, the northern part of Canada. And uh, we're currently in the process of implementing a project called Haulirmat. Um, and Haulirmat means because it's dawn. Uh, so because it's a youth a youth uh, initiative, uh, I decided to name it Inuit Youth Contributing Towards a Bright Future, uh, which is truly the only youth-led initiative that is uh, not only evolving, but growing its response to the needs and dreams of the youth. And the goal is to, to elevate them and to, to, to reach sort of their full potential and give them the tools, uh, confidence, and... and um, access to the pathways for funding for for education and projects and everything so this is this is the work that all arctic is all about at the moment and by working in the education sector with this project over the over the summer uh well we're not only building community relationships but we're also building land-based pedagogy to help the kids reconnect with the land and we're in a way sort of bridge builders between people and organizations that are not in the Arctic and that are not Inuit uh, who want to work in the Arctic and with Inuit communities and other communities in the Arctic. This is where this is where we're from, and uh, this is where uh, uh, we have uh, kinship, family, networks. So this is this is the mission of all Arctic. And why is this work so important? to the communities that you're working with? So 
the starting point is Nunavik is extremely remote. It's a, it's a, it's a territory that's about twice the size of France and it's all the way up in the Arctic. And the only way to get there is by airplane. So therefore the, the remoteness alone of, of Nunavik makes it much harder for, for any kind of, uh, progress to, to be, uh, enhanced in a way it's far, it's costly. There's lack of infrastructure, lack of telecommunications, transportation, uh, housing. That's the biggest problem that we have up North. So by doing this important work and trying to engage the youth, um, we're also able to, to justify the importance of not only education, but of coming together and doing, and doing this work. Uh, like I said, you know, there's, there's so many different problems, uh, mostly at the infrastructural level because of the remoteness alone of the, of the Arctic. So, uh, it's, it's one, one step in a, in a huge journey that, that we have to do. But if, uh, if we don't do this work now, then we're going to pass on the same problems to, to our children. So it's a, it's a matter of, uh, doing this important work now so that over the generations, it can not only become better, but, um, we can sort of reconcile the past that we have in this country with uh, the history of this country and and who we are inherently as people and where we're where we're trying to go. We've been here for for thousands of years and we'll certainly be here for the for the next thousands of years to come. So I'm really interested in this point. How do you how do you galvanize young people in the Arctic, particularly in communities which are very remote, which I, I assume from what you're saying and from what I've read, are, are relatively disconnected from the wider world. There's a lack of internet connectivity, for example. How do you reach people? How do you get them to, to do things? Great question. <clears throat> Actually, the, uh, the single best way to reach out to, quite frankly, any member of the Inuit community is, is through Facebook. That's our, that's our, our go-to is Facebook. Um, but, but because there's such big, big problems when it comes to infrastructure and even access to internet connection, it, it, there is sort of a digital divide that happens between, uh, what I would refer to as the Western world, you know, so Southern Canada, bigger cities, bigger urban areas and remote communities all across the country. Um, so in a way, the, the best way to, to, um, engage the youth is to go directly in the community and to do the work in the community with the groups there. Or if it's with the youth in the cities, then there's networks of, of, of people and organizations that were able to tap into, to sort of get the word out. And, um, universities has been, universities have been pretty good at, uh, sort of, uh, opening up the floor to leave space for a bunch of amazing academic stuff and, conferences and and seminars and and courses so in a way that's how we that's how we engage youth is with uh projects like like all arctic we they um there's there's an inherent distrust between the indigenous communities and and the broader general canadian population because of our history so by by allowing uh youth to be engaged by people who not only look like them but but speak their language and understand everything of their lived experience, uh, we're better able to create this kind of, this kind of trust that is needed to do this work with the youth. And, uh, not only that, but to instill hope, 
Um, there's there's a lot of societal problems that, and and the very first symptom of that is we have the highest rate of teenage suicide. So that that says a lot about hopelessness. You know, hope is is when we uh, hope is when we believe that is something better down the line, which is what keeps us uh, sort of going. So we have a very high rate of teenage suicide. So that's the starting point. There's so many problems and and having this kind of important work to to help these people bring them speakers activities open up the doors to all the opportunities that are offered to them through not only the digital uh world but even connecting them with amazing people like we've been doing uh with maggie so yeah that's how we engage youth and you've spoken about the trust between different communities i'm interested in uh, you know the trust between your community and the Canadian authorities, because I, I know that there's so much history there. Is all how is all Arctic working with the Canadian government? Um, honestly, once again, this is our starting point. You know, um, we uh, we have such uh, we have, our history with the Canadian government is rooted in genocide, and uh, the whole world came to realize that. Uh, especially recently with the, the findings of the residential schools. Um, but this is something that we, we always, personally, I am always asked this question and I like to, to sort of bring it this way. You know, there's, there's so many indigenous peoples that are still living in precarious living conditions. Uh, they're very poorly housed. The heating is not good. The, the sewage system is, the hygienic conditions are not, uh, they don't meet basic, basic living rights um and and the other one is is a uh, lack of clean drinkable water so if the government is able to at least offer that then certainly it could it could show that it has it sheds a bit more light onto its willingness to help the youth um so that's sort of a question that bugs me a little bit and give, it gives me opportunity to shed light on it and uh you know all the all the greatest community leaders and indigenous scholars came together and put up uh the, the 94 calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. So the government knows what it has to do. It just truly has to do it and to engage with youth like uh, that that are part of All Arctic and the programs that are that are doing is a really good way to 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 do one one step uh, towards uh, reconciliation between um, indigenous communities and the government because we. We have this inherent distrust uh, that was built over over hundreds of years, and uh, it's a, it's a lived experience for most of us, and it's certainly a lived experience for myself. But if if I'm able to to carry this this voice here today, is you know just to say that the youth is ready to tackle on these these challenges, and 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 one way that the government can do it is is follow through with the promises that they've made, and and to have accountability and sort of uh, let go of certain powers and you know the power dynamics have been the same and uh, if if reconciliation is to happen then the government has to learn to let go of certain powers which can also it is also happening in the philanthropic world as well so bridging all this together and it's a it's complex but the youth is ready to tackle it on top of which we're ready to do it in english or french we we were we finally learned those languages too so we uh we're part of uh, we're part of this uh, this North American society, and we're here to stay. So 
I think the government will realize that eventually, and that's how we're better able to help the youth. I'm really interested in that point, because when I was speaking to Maggie, she was describing these sort of bureaucratic barriers to uh, Indigenous people and Indigenous youth getting help from the authorities. So she was saying that often to apply for funding or to get assistance in other ways, you would need the equivalent of an advanced degree. And that's something which, you know, many people just don't have, you know, an advanced language ability. And obviously being able to speak that technical and legal language to apply for funding grants is something which is very, very specialized. Is that uh, a fair assessment? Are there lots of sort of hurdles, unnecessary hurdles to getting help? That's that's a very fair assessment, Nicholas. I think um, I have to I have to admit, you know, the 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 pathways to get to donation or even registration and getting to know this language itself is a is a process and not I would say a very very small minority of people are able to actually access those uh those spaces and the and those those skills <clears throat> so. Those are definitely hindrances and barriers that that the government has put, and it's there's there's loopholes. But most times, you know, if if you don't have the necessary language or knowledge to be able to put up this this kind of uh, this kind of important work to to fund your project and to, to 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 find some staff and to get your your project recognized and and marketed and everything, well, in a sense, the the, the pathways to to doing this nonprofit work is in many ways non indigenous it's not indigenized in many ways it's it doesn't take into reality the account the, it doesn't take into account the reality of of how most indigenous people uh live which does not mean that there's not amazing projects going on right there's amazing ideas everywhere there's a lot of potential but because of the the inherent way that the system is built uh those hindrances inherently end up you know it's uh, it's secluding the, the the indigenous youth and communities even furthermore in a way where they can't necessarily access the funding and, and get to to the goal that they wanted wanted they want to accomplish yeah and i i think that was something that came out so much from my conversations with maggie when she described her um how delighted she was that she could travel around the world following her global teacher prize win with some of her students and i think you accompanied her on on at least one of her trips is is that right and i wondered if you could speak a little bit about that experience and what it felt like and what what you took away from it correct yes uh so the year was 2018 i believe maggie was already following uh the prize that she won she was already doing amazing conferences worldwide and um it's been her, after speaking with her, it, it, I, I realized that it's been her mandate to to sort of bring Inuit youth with her on her trips so that the the people she speaks with and, and meet actually have a direct touch and relationship with um, the Inuit youth. So I was, I was uh, one of the youth that actually, um, I was, I was uh, doing my undergraduate degree at McGill University at the time, and uh, they reached out to me and they said, "Oh, there's this amazing opportunity of going with uh, Maggie to Maggie to uh, to Colombia." I already knew Maggie at the time, and uh, 
it was it was quite frankly it was quite amazing we, we got to you know put the word out there and uh speak about who we are and what we do and the education we had a live tv interview uh we got to meet the ambassador a bunch of uh, very important educators and politicians in colombia and quite frankly i must admit maybe even sometimes we are we are received and treated a bit better in uh in uh countries abroad than within our own country by our own government and people so in a way that was that was very uplifting not only on a on a personal level but it was uh it was it was good for me to to sort of share it with my fellow Inuit to say that hey listen this is the work that I'm doing I've I've I'm 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 talking highly of us and what we're doing and talking about our history through um all of its history and I've been doing this work too you know not not just with Maggie I've been traveling to um through Argentina and, and Europe for some other nonprofit work that I'm involved in, um, which ended last year. And this is another opportunity that that came through Maggie, through someone that she knew, who was in some ways, I, I believe, connected to, to uh, people in your organization. So so the, the, the branches that it has and how the intricacies of how the work can still keep happening even after such a big thing, such as the global teacher prize happens is, is really interesting and, and that's sort of what we do so Maggie and I are are now you know doing the working in this mandate of all arctic to uh to sort of keep doing this important project and introducing more outsiders of the community to not only the arctic but to the to the Inuit youth and Inuit people in general thanks so much Felix I, I'm conscious of of your time but I'm very very grateful uh, that you could find the the time to speak with us today. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating to hear about your work and to hear about the challenges and struggles faced by your community, but also, you know, also to, as you say, to hear about this hope that you are working to deliver with other young people. Uh, so thank you so, so much, Felix. And uh, if people want to know more about your work uh or or the situation is there anything that they should they should look at absolutely well nicholas i want to i want to thank you as well for you know allowing allowing me to be here on, on on this podcast i think it's a it's a great opportunity to put the word out and to make sure that uh you know more and more people know about the important work we're doing so if people are curious and want to get involved in in any capacity with all arctic they can visit our website www.allarctic.org and uh just reach out we're here and uh we're actively working on this and uh, this is just uh, the beginning it's it's certainly going to be uh, our life project and uh, it's going to be passed on to the next generations that's certainly what we aim for Thank you so much, Felix. And thank you, everyone, for listening in to today's episode. Uh, please leave us a great review wherever you get your podcasts and look forward to uh, seeing you on the next episode. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Old School is produced by the Varky Foundation, a global education charity working to ensure that every child has a good teacher. Please join us next week for another inspirational story.